I'm Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment, and I'm excited to bring you this kickoff episode of our new podcast, Principles of Dealership Management with Dr. Jim Weber. During this five-part series, Dr. Weber and editor-publisher Mike Lester discuss dealer management best practices based on Weber's 40-plus years of working with dealers and manufacturers in the ag, construction, and other industries. In this first episode, Dr. Weber shares how he got involved in both consulting and the farm equipment dealership world before diving into what the ag equipment industry should be learning from the auto industry, particularly as it relates to used equipment. Before we head over to Mike's conversation with Dr. Weber, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Primus by Basic Software, for making this podcast possible. Are you tired of not having the ability to access your business outside of the office? Primus by Basic Software Systems is a web-based responsive software that puts your business in your hands with full access from anywhere, anytime. No limited apps and no other connections required, just internet access. Wouldn't you love to see the data you want with one simple click or tap? With Primus, customize your views to show exactly what you want to see, when you want to see it. And the system's multiple layers of data allow you to go deeper with your information. Primus truly is your business system in your pocket. To learn more, visit www.basic-software.com slash Primus. Like all our podcasts, you can subscribe via Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. By subscribing, you're alerted when each new podcast is released. Also, be sure to head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Okay, let's get going. Here's part one of Mike Lesseter's exclusive one-on-one interview with Dr. Jim Weber. Welcome with us, Dr. Jim. Great to have you here. You did a tremendous job at the workshop this morning. Brilliant you comment, know. Mike. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us. I know that in the farm equipment industry, you may be as well known as anyone. With For 40 years, you've been consulting in this business, been authoring columns, giving presentations, training all sectors of the industry. Um, I actually still have a few dealers still in business too. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and a couple of the manufacturers that I've worked with are still in business. That's yeah. that's, a, that's encouraging. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you a simple question to start this off. Tell us about going back and how you actually got into this business. I'm not sure everyone knows your story. Though. 1978, I was in between positions. I was headed back to the university to get a doctorate degree and a consulting firm had contacted me, asked me if I was interested in working for several months. 1978, January 78, ended up spending a year and a half holding back, going back for the doctorate degree. In July of 79, I elected to pursue that doctorate degree at West Virginia University, left a consulting firm. And fortuitously, the consulting firm had lost a contract with International Harvester at that point in time, about two months after I left. So it worked out really well. I was at West Virginia University in 82. My former employer, Sperry Boom of Florida, contacted me. He had uh, signed a contract with Massey Ferguson Corporation. He was a, an associate professor of marketing at the University of South Florida. I was on staff at West Virginia University. We went out and spent uh, six months visiting Massey Ferguson dealers. We put together a strategic plan for them initially and then a 900-page uh, training manual to proceed to go out and train their dealers. We did so over the next three years, trained Massey Ferguson dealers between 83 and 86. And then from there, we went to Case IH in 86 to 91, and I split with my partner in 92 and been on my own since 92. Mm -hmm. When you were setting out for your doctorate career, did you ever envision that this might be the business that you end up going into? Not really, no, I did not actually. 
So it became an opportunity that then you you immersed yourself in and went. Well, in 78, when I joined the, the consulting firm in 78, and again, thinking it was only going to be for a few months and it turned out to be a year and a half, we had a contract with International Harvester. And any of the IH dealers that will go back into the 70s will remember the things like uh, the XL program. We developed that program for International Harvester. The FAX program, which was way ahead of its time in terms of training for dealers, certification programs, et cetera. This firm of Sperry Boom of Florida that I was associated with actually put that material together for International Harvester. We went out and worked with their pay line division on the construction on the CE side of the business in 78, 79. Uh, we actually had a consulting firm employing of about 30 people at that point in time, literally living in Chicago at working with IH. And so I knew at that point, but when I went back to WVU, I thought my relationship with that firm had come to an end amicably. And um, just uh, fortuitously, he contacted me three years later and said, hey, I've made a contact with Massey Ferguson and it just materialized from there. Agriculture is just one of several dealer industries that you... Actually, I've spent almost 100% of my time, I'd probably say 95% agricultural and construction, the yeah. two together. Okay. And if I were to split it, I would probably say 80% of my time has been on the ag, on the ag side and 20% on the CE side. Okay. But I mean, I've done work with, I've, I've worked with just about every manufacturer there is, mm-hmm. including Caterpillar here in Peoria. And a few of them have invited me back a second time or a third time. What are the things that um, your exposure on the construction side that uh, you were trying to calibrate the, the ag equipment dealer to learn from what you've seen in that industry? Well, let me go the opposite way. It's really kind of interesting. When I did the work and I trained all of the uh, CAT dealers in 1998, I did three training programs, trained 53 of their then 63 dealers. And I walked away from that training in August of 98. And I simply made the following statement that the Caterpillar would be out of the business in five years. And people would come back and say, well, why do you think cat dealers will be out of the business or Caterpillar would be out of the business? And I said, clearly, number one, their dealers had no passion no passion at all for the agricultural equipment side. They were being forced into the market because of the folks in Peoria. Fantastic. They got them in there. But the fact of the matter is they only had a small nucleus or a small coterie of dealers that were interested. No passion. Number two, they could not do, they they were very good at getting to the bell cow in the marketplace, but they weren't very good at moving down the, the, the tier of farmers. And number three, they could sustain the used equipment market, but they had no outlet for used equipments. Because of their net worth, they were able to hold that used equipment, or as it would have broke the typical case dealer, or the typical IH dealer, or the typical John Deere dealer, they were able to hold on to it. But when you looked at the numbers, they wanted out. So Caterpillar made an absolutely correct move in terms of giving it away, and make no mistake about it, it was a giveaway to Agco at that point in time, the Bob Ratliff. So when I look at the industry, I don't make the equation, I don't look at the ag dealers and equate it to the construction. I look at the ag dealers and equate it to the car dealers. And what I continue to tell ag dealers is everything you're seeing in the car business, they're about 10 to 15 years ahead of what, what's, what's happening in the agricultural side of the business. Whether, I don't care whether it's compensation, whether it's managing the inventories, et cetera. Uh, they're 10 to 15 years ahead of the time. The ag dealers continue to lay back uh, in terms of adapting the changes that need to be made in the marketplace. We'll get back to Mike and Dr. Weber in a moment, but first I wanted to take a quick second to thank our sponsor, Primus by Basic Software. To learn more about what Primus can do for your dealership, visit www.basic-software.com Primus. I also wanted to take a moment to invite you to join us for the next Dealership Mind Summit. Visit www.dealershipmindsummit.com to learn more and to register. Okay, let's get back to the program and listen in as Mike and Dr. Weber delve into what we can learn from auto dealers. What are the things that are on the kind of the near horizon 
in the next five years that came out of auto. So if, if there was a stu student of the auto industry would see showing up here in the next five. Yeah, clearly one of the things is the way they manage their use to go and see. I, I, I look back and I say, in 1986, automotive dealers woke up and said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And it was like a collective uh, scream out there by the dealers, like coming out of the movie network and said, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So they did two things in 1986, moving forward over the next three years. Number one, they said, I'm sick and tired of losing money in the service department. At that point in time, their, their typical service department was hemorrhaging money. So they came back and said, okay, we're going to start to make money in this. Now, there's some issues on that and they moved away a lot of business and they say that, okay, we're only doing warranties and they have alienated a lot of customers at the parts counter. Their parts business is virtually non-existent at the parts counter. That's a dumb move on their part. But overall, they said, hey, we're going to make money in the service department, number one. And number two, what they suggested was, we are not going to sit there with used cars. And so they said, we're going to spin this used equipment out every 45 days going for an eight times turn. They also, in the intervening 33 years, came back and said, and this is where the smart auto dealers are, they, are, they have a significantly higher margin on the used side than they do on the new side. They're almost looking at new cars any longer as a loss leader. So let's spin that car out, take a little bit of money, turn around and make the big money off the used side, turning that unit every 45 days. If that unit is not gone in 45 days, giving them an eight times turn, it's going off to the auction so that they can maintain their eight times turn. And this is where you're seeing the auto nations of the world. It's not about the margin these people are making. This is what the ag dealers have got to get in their head. It is not about the margin you're generating. It is about the speed and the rapidity by which they're turning that used equipment outside that inventory. They've got to be looking at a three times turn, minimum used equipment turn coming off the used side. And again, auto dealers are at eight. But I have dealers right now that have four, five, six, eight. I have one dealer that's at a 12 times turn. He's saying, I don't want any equipment that's older than 30 days. And has the discipline to and, has, and that's, a, that's a great word, Mike, and that's exactly what you look at, and they have the discipline to do it. And this is what you really see when it, when it breaks down to it, and this is what I try to emphasize this morning. When it breaks down to these dealers, the dealers that are successful are going to have four overriding abilities. They're going to have leadership skills. They're going to have discipline. They're going to have focus. And because of those three, they're going to develop a culture by which the employees can't wait to get to work and work within that organization. And this is where the overwhelming number of dealers are falling short. They lack that discipline, and they lack the focus, and truly, they lack the leadership skills that they need to do it. Now, can it be developed? The answer is absolutely yes, it can. The real issue becomes, however, is when you're looking at dealers, a myriad of dealers want to retain employees that are poor performers. They want to retain employees that have poor attitudes. And you say to them, well, why do you, why do, you do that? Why do you keep them? Why do you retain them? And the answer invariably is, Jim, you don't know how difficult it is to find a replacement for them. I would rather have a bad employee, a poor employee, an individual with a poor attitude than having to go out and find an employee that's really going to do their job, neglecting the fact that their number one numero uno responsibility is to surround themselves with good people and have the right people on the bus as well as being in the right seat on the bus. And this is where the thing is falling apart in most dealerships. Do you find that, the, is there a threshold on the size of dealership stores where management structures become more important it's, that, that keep that from happening? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. My, my two most profitable dealers are dealerships with three locations. Now, that doesn't mean that dealerships with 15, 16, 17 dealerships are not profitable. It's just that they're not as profitable. So I don't know where that... Uh, 
fantastic spot is it, is it three or five? The fact that the matter is, however, I don't care how large your organization is, whether they're a Titan, whether they're an RDO, if in fact they've surrounded themselves then with good regional managers and they have the proper span of control and these individuals are overseeing five locations, six locations, seven locations, then they should be doing well. The problem is it's finding the good, good people, whether you're a three location store or whether you're an 89 location store. And the key becomes A, finding good employees, B, finding employees that are going to follow the same kind of culture that hopefully the dealer himself is laying out. If we had a time machine and I could go back and and sit in one of your trainings in the early 80s and fast forward to today, what what would be markedly different about how you go about it and what would have still been identical to 40 years ago? You know, I've always emphasized the profitability, but if you go back 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I mean, I've always emphasized the cash flow aspect of it over and above the profitability aspect of it. But over the last 25 years, I put more of an emphasis on the benchmark. In other words, it's one thing to talk about cash flow. It's another thing to lay out. What do we need from a sales mix standpoint? What do we need from a parts turnover standpoint? What do we need from a used equipment standpoint? What do we need from a work in process standpoint? What do we need from an, an, an accounts receivable turnover standpoint? And so laying the benchmark side and laying it based on the historical nature of the business and saying, okay, this is where we've been. Now, where do we need to get to to provide the cash flow that you're going to need to sustain the operation? If there is a bigger problem in the industry, other than the dealer's inability to differentiate between paper profits and positive cash flow, I don't know what it is. That clearly is, to me, the number one indicator that we need to look at. Dealers need to move away from the focus of looking at their bottom line profit and look at the generation of positive cash flow. Well, I've got many dealers that have been profitable over the last 25 years and have gone out of business. Now, they're not going out of business because they lack the profitability. They're going out of business because of their inability to meet payroll obligations, to meet interest payments, and to do the kinds of things that cash is required to do that. And you're only going to get cash, not by posting paper profits, but by turning the assets to give them the cash. Now, where's the cash in a typical ag dealership? It's sitting in the used equipment. It's sitting in the accounts receivables. It's sitting in the work in process. It's sitting in the parts inventory. Now, their job is to maximize the return on those four. If they can do that, they're going to have cash flow. They're going to have positive cash flow, and they will have higher and significant bottom line profitability. That does it for part one of Principles of Dealership Management with Dr. Jim Weber. Thanks again to Premus by Basic Software for sponsoring this series. Be sure to listen in next time when Dr. Weber examines cash flow and sales mix. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.